0: Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters' 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights.
1: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
2: This is 117th big league game, 109th start. Joey Manessis swings and drives going to deep right. Back goes Brian Anderson of the warning track at the wall. It is gone. Goodbye. Bang. Zoom goes Joey Manessis the opposite way to straightaway right field. Joey Manessis the opposite way with his 11th home run of the year and 27th run batted in. Just the eighth home run by a right-handed hitter against Alcantara all year. Here's the pitch, swinging a line drive toward the right field line. Fair ball down the right field line toward the corner. Rounding third, De La Cruz. He'll score. The ball out of the corner for Thomas momentarily. A little trouble gets it into Garcia. Stallings will stop at third and into second with an RBI double. Is Miguel Rojas. And now the Marlins lead by the score of four to one. Two balls and two strikes. He wastes no time. He has a new baseball. He's on the rubber. Looking in. Has the sign into the windup. 2 2 on the way. Swing and a miss. Struck him out. 101 miles an hour. His fastest pitch of the night. His 11th strikeout of the night.
0: He strikes out the side here in the eighth inning. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, September 25th, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com, Nationals Insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Lone Depot Park in Miami. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. If you are a child of the 80s and or early 90s, you perhaps remember the great Nintendo game Contra. And if you remember that game Contra, you perhaps remember that there was a famous cheat code for Contra. And if you entered that cheat code, you got a number of extra lives. You see, if you wanted to beat Contra, the cheat code was key. If only <laughs> there was a cheat code for Sandy Alcontra. He has proven basically impossible to beat for the Nats. Saturday evening, a 4-1 Nats loss at the Marlins to fall to a major league worst 52 and 99 including 14 and 51 against the National League East, Sandy Alcantara, for whom there is no cheat code, one run in eight innings, 11 strikeouts versus one walk, dominant in a win over the Nats for a second time in seven days. Mark, I think it's safe to say the Nats have seen enough of Sandy Alcantara this season.
3: All I have to say to you, Al, is up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. Did I get it?
0: You nailed it. Now, did you have to look that up?
3: No, no, no. I just did it off the top of my head. I did that one enough times that uh, I, I remembered it. I'll tell you what. I think Alex Call might actually have the cheat code for Sandy Alcantara. He's the only guy who's been able to reach base with any consistency against him over the last week. Otherwise, nobody. I know Joey Meneses hit a home run. Good for him. Didn't do anything else. I mean, it's you tip your cap. This guy's been phenomenal. He's going to win the Cy Young Award. But what he's done against the Nationals this year, five starts, 4 and 4-0. Oh, ERA. And to me, the most remarkable thing, he averaged eight innings per start against the Nationals. Who does that in 2022? Nobody. Jacob deGrom doesn't do it. Max Scherzer doesn't do it. Clayton Kershaw doesn't do it. Nobody does that. Sandy Alcantara is the true definition of an ace, not just the dominance, but the length that he gives you is really unprecedented in today's game.
0: Yeah, we talked about this the last time we had a Sandy Alcantara conversation, which was not that long ago. It's not just the run prevention, it's the volume of work. Sandy Alcantara now this season, ERA at 232 over a major league leading 220 and two thirds innings. I mean, these days, if you reach 180 innings, that's like a big deal. This guy's at 220 plus now on the season. I know that we can be prisoners of the moment, but it's hard to remember a great starting pitcher who dominated the Nats the way that Sandy Alcantara has dominated the Nats this season. I know the Nats have struggled against someone like a Jacob deGrom over the years. There have been others, too. But in terms of, like, one season, to have this tough of a time against one guy— This may be at the top of the list. I mean, Alcantara has been so difficult for the Nats this season.
3: Well, and it's the fact that they keep getting him. The two teams played six series against each other this year. So that would be the most starts you could face somebody at six. That hardly ever happens. You get six. Well, they got five. That doesn't happen that often either. You would think odds are that he just wouldn't line up right for them or he pitched the day before they faced him or the day after. They're going to face him. No, they got him in five out of the six series. I guess the good news next year, new schedule, you only play each team four times in your own division. So, maximum four starts that he'll have against them. But yeah, I really can't think of anybody else who did this to them so consistently over a full season. It even goes back to last year. It's six straight times they faced him that they haven't beaten him. They haven't scored more than one run in any of those starts. So, it's not even like they've had a good game here or there. They've been dominated every time they've faced him. And again, there's no shame in that. He's done it to everybody this year. He's going to win the Cy Young Award. But boy, it would be nice just to have one night where you felt like, okay, we got a little something going against him or scored a couple of runs, made him sweat a little, knocked him out in the sixth inning with a high pitch count. They just were not able to do that at all against him
0: this year. In this time in which the Nats are struggling to develop great starting pitching, I find it instructive to look at guys like Alcantara and see, okay, what are their stories? Like, how did they come to be who they are? So Sandy Alcantara was actually signed by the St. Louis Cardinals in 2013 as an amateur free agent out of the Dominican Republic. He was traded to the Marlins in December 2017 in the Marcel Ozuna trade. Alcantara, though, is another one of these great pitchers who wasn't great from the get-go. He was good. He was solid. Um, You know, he looked like he had something going for him, but you didn't think he was going to be this. And then it's over the last two to three years that he really has emerged as this dominant starting pitcher. You see this with a lot of guys. Max Scherzer was like this. Jacob deGrom was like this. Like, initially, you're okay, maybe even good, And then something changes, something clicks, and in like year three, year four, you bust out and you become dominant, and that's what has happened. I mean, Alcantara beginning really with his 2020 season, and that was that abbreviated season, he just has taken off. And so, you know, you think about a guy like, say, a Josiah Gray, and look, Alcantara did not have a season early in his career like Gray has had this year, but it doesn't click from the get-go for a lot of these guys. Like, very rarely do you get the Steven Strasburg thing, where you're just outstanding from day one. Usually it takes a few years, and with Alcantara, you know, this is someone for whom you know it took two or three years, and now he is just rolling.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, I'm looking at his 2019 season. I know we don't care about wins and losses, but he led the league in losses in 2019. He had a one three one eight WHIP, which is not awful, but it's not dominant, not great. Sometimes you do have to let the guy develop and figure it out. Now, what he has and has always had is just phenomenal stuff. He's throwing close to triple digits with his fastball, and it sinks. And he throws a, a slider that's in the 90s and a changeup that's in the low 90s. So everything he throws is hard, even though there is a difference in velocity in all of them. Everything moves. It's just a really uncomfortable at bat. But yeah, he's put it together and he's been in a situation where they were able to let him fail a little bit, learn on the job, and ultimately get to be to the point that he's the best pitcher in the league. So you would hope, whether it's Josiah Gray, Cade Cavalli, Mackenzie Gore, or somebody else who's still yet to come through here, that they are afforded the opportunity to maybe fail a little bit at the big league level, learn how to become a better pitcher, and ultimately that it pays off for them. I go back many years ago to Lucas Giolito, and it's a different situation. The team was trying to win. They couldn't really afford to leave him up there and let him get hit hard. But four starts into his career, they end up trading him to the White Sox and the Adam Eaton trade, which, look, Adam Eaton helped him win a World Series. So no hard feelings about that one. But we saw eventually what Giolito became. And sometimes you need to be in a situation where you can fail, grow on the job, and ultimately you're better for it. And the Nationals are in a position now to do that. And so as frustrating as some of these games are, when we see some of these young pitchers, it may be worth it to let them go through this, learn on the job. And the hope would be that two, three years down the road, they will benefit for it.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a balance there for sure, because You do need to see signs of progress and like, you know, you can't have a guy every year not be good. And you keep saying, well, maybe someday, like the guy who pitched for the Nats on Saturday evening, Eric Fetty, we've been dancing this dance for years now with him of, okay, well, maybe, you know, possibly he could be something. And it's like, no, I think at this point, this is what he is. So you do need to show signs of progress. But, yeah, it doesn't click from the get go for everyone to where, you know, the great pitchers are great from the get go. So, the Nats on Saturday evening had three hits the entire game. This offense, which had been in a much better way lately, has really calmed down over these last few games. The Nats on Saturday evening, three hits, one walk, struck out 12 times, 0 for 2 with runners in scoring position. Just two at bats with runners in scoring position the entire game. But you did have what Joey Menezes did in the top of the first inning. And, you know, first innings obviously can be misleading. And I guess you say that this was one of them. But the Nats did get to Alcantara early in this game on Saturday evening. They just didn't get to him after this. But Joey Manessis in the top of the first inning, a two-out first pitch, opposite field solo home run to right field off Alcantara for a one nothing Nats lead. So, you know, during this run of the legend of Joey Manessis, this is another thing that you can add to his list now of homering off the guy who has been the best pitcher in the National League this season, going the opposite way.
3: And that's a 99 mile an hour fastball that was kind of running in on him. And he did a great job of, I want to say, fighting it off. I mean, that's what he did. And he still muscled it out over the fence to right field. So a great job by him. But it was interesting, it came on the first pitch, of the at-bat. And he talked about last week when he faced him, he found himself down on the count a little bit more often. And he said, once you get to two strikes against this guy, you're completely. In his hands, you have no control anymore because he can throw any one of those pitches and usually get you to whiff at it. So he felt like, and they felt like these these two games, especially against him, you have to be aggressive early in the count. Credit to him. He got a pitch he could do something with on the very first pitch of the at-bat, but it does show you the the difficulty in facing this guy, which is you want to be aggressive. You want to look for a good fastball immediately over the plate. But if you don't do something big with it, All you're doing is recording quick outs and giving him an opportunity to pitch deeper in the games because he's so efficient that the pitch count doesn't ever get up there.
0: And it's not like Manessis, you know, hit that ball 500 feet. That was like a 360-foot homer to right field at uh, Lone Depot Park. So, you know, look, you take it. But, I mean, even the homer wasn't some, you know, gargantuan clout by Joey Manessis. And then the only other two hits for the Nats over the duration of this game An Alex Call single, and the single by Call was an opposite field bloop single to right field in the top of the fourth, and then a bunt single by C.J. Abrams. I mean, that was it in terms of hits by the Nats in this game. Although, as you alluded to, it was funny with Alex Call. So he for this game as the Nats number five batter, one for one with a single, a walk and a hit by pitch. He got on base three times against Alcantara on Saturday evening.
3: And he got on base three times against him Sunday. And each game, there was a walk. A four pitch walk and a hit by pitch. So Alex Call has figured out somehow Alcantara does not throw the ball in the zone against him. Now it came at a price because that hit by pitch, 99 miles an hour, it got him on the left elbow and then it ricocheted and looked like it got him in the stomach after that. That was painful. But hey, whatever you have to do to get on base. And yeah, three of the five batters to reach base in this game for the Nationals, three of them were Alex Call doing it. So. He figured it out. I don't know what else you can do beyond that other than clone the guy and uh, let him bat multiple times in the game. Because unless somebody else in this lineup is willing to stick their elbow out at a 99 mile an hour riding fastball, I'm not sure there's any other answer to how to get on base against Alcantara.
0: I have to say, I like Alex Cole. You know, there's like a feistiness to him, a grittiness to him that's kind of fun to watch. And you know, like a lot of these Nats outfielders, you don't know if maybe he's nothing more than a fourth outfielder, but he's given them some decent production here down the stretch of the season. He is a hustle player. I mean, he really is not concerned with the well-being of his body when he plays the outfield, you know, which is pretty cool to see. And I would venture to say, it's funny you mentioned Adam Eaton earlier, that call is the kind of guy who Mike Rizzo likes because Rizzo loved Adam Eaton because of Eaton's toughness and grit and, you know, those kinds of attributes. And, you know, I'm not saying Cole is Eaton, but I don't know. I see some Eaton like qualities to Alex Cole.
3: Yeah, I like what you're thinking there. They're also both Midwest guys. Uh, Adam Eaton was from Michigan, and Alex Cole's from Wisconsin. So maybe there's a little, you know, Mike Rizzo's from Chicago. <laughs> maybe there's a little bit of Midwestern grit in there that appeals to him. He's the kind of guy that if he does ever really get going and starts playing, especially if the team starts winning, could really easily become a fan favorite because of the way he plays the game, the style of the game. You can like it or not, you can say that makes a difference or not, but he does play the game hard, both at the plate, on the bases, in the field. and It can be refreshing, can be a little bolt of energy at times. I like what I've seen there to say, hey, I want to see some more of this. I don't know what that ends up making him in the long run, but certainly he should be in the mix for a spot next year on the roster. And you know, if we think that Lane Thomas now is proving that he is an everyday player in the big leagues, then maybe that means Call could be the fourth outfielder that we thought Lane Thomas was going to be a year ago.
0: Well, it's funny. I mean, Lane Thomas, Alex Call, Victor Robles, you could argue all three guys are fourth outfielders. But yeah, I mean, this is what you're working with, and you have seen some good stuff. From Alex Call. You know, with Lane Thomas, it's funny. We talked uh, off the game last Sunday of Davey Martinez basically waving the white flag and not having Lane in the lineup to face Sandy Alcantara. (laughs) Saturday evening, we kind of saw why. Lane in this game is an Nats' number one batter, 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. Now, look, I applaud Davey for having Lane in there. I mean, this is how you grow as a batter, okay? You can't run and hide. Like, you got to face tough guys like Alcantara and try to get better, but. Things did not go so well for the lane train on Saturday night, and he was not the only one. I mean, Luis Garcia, 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Luke Voigt, who to me has had too many overs here lately, 0 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts. Emil Navarro Vargas, 0 for 3, left three men on base. Victor Robles, 0 for 3, two strikeouts. Riley Adams, 0 for 3 with two strikeouts. A lot of zeros in that Nats box score on Saturday evening.
3: Yeah, and it's not like there were a whole lot of, uh, you know, oh, well-struck ball just right at somebody. No, it was not much going on, weak contact if contact at all. And Lane Thomas now in his career against Mr. Alcantara, 0 for 15 with nine strikeouts. So maybe there is a reason he was not in the lineup on Sunday.
0: Yeah, it was not good. You know, it's also interesting too with Alcantara is, here you have the Nats, right? They have faced him a bunch of times and the results have basically always been the same. So it's something to remember, right? When you hear about, well, the league can get a book on a guy, a team can get super used to facing a guy. If you're great, you're great, you know. Those who can do, and if you're really good at what you do, it doesn't matter how many times a team faces you, how many times a certain batter faces you. Like, if you're better than him, you're better than him, and you know we've seen that with Alcantara this year.
3: Yeah, I think you put him in a special class where I don't think it matters how often you see him when you've got that kind of stuff and. You're just in a groove the way that he is this year. And who knows? Is this the beginning of, a, of an all time run for this guy over the next several years? Or is this just one phenomenal season for a guy who's just going to go down as being a very good pitcher? I don't know. We're going to find out. But it does make me think, boy, if I'm the Marlins and I've got him and some other really good pitchers on this roster, go spend a little bit of money on a couple of hitters, right? I mean, there's an opportunity for these guys to actually build something and win here for a change. And are you really going to squander? This all-time great season by a pitcher that you think you should have for a few more years and a couple others that you have, like you have a playoff rotation here right now. You do not have anything close to resembling a playoff lineup and just go spend a little bit of money. doesn't have to be a lot. Go get yourself a decent lineup. You might actually win something next year.
0: Well, we know if the Marlins do spend, there will be a fire sale like six months later. So that's just (laughs) the way that it always goes. I mean, seriously, the Marlins are one of the strangest franchises. I mean, you know, think about like the Derek Jeter thing, right? Like he takes over, he's running things. And then like 10 minutes later, he's gone, right? He's out from the organization. Like what happened there? What was that about? You know, weird things happen with this team. This was the team that had Barry Bonds as a hitting coach <laughs> right. and that lasted for about 10 minutes. You know, it's like just strange weird things happen with this team. You never can buy into anything with this team lasting for more than a little while. You know, they'll go all in for a season like in 2012 and then immediately get out, you know, that kind of a thing. So, yeah, but that's a Marlins issue. The Nats have their have enough of their own issues.
1: Nats Chat is brought to you by Better Health. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. There's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's been continually recommended to me that therapy is the way to go in modern times. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com/NatchChat. That's Better H-E-L-P.com/NatchChat. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed.
0: Fetty
2: kicks on, throws the pitch, and he rams that one to center, does De La Cruz. Robles sprinting back, it's over his head, and gone. De La Cruz sends one out of here to straightaway
0: center. And now it's Marlins three, Nationals one. So, you know, it's funny, we talk about Alcantara facing the Nats a bunch. The Nats starting pitcher on Saturday evening, Eric Fetty, how many times has he faced the Marlins over the years? in for Fetty on Saturday evening, you had him not being good for a fourth time in five starts. The unraveling of Eric Fetty's 2022 season continued. He allowed four runs in five and two-thirds innings. He gave up nine hits, a home run, three doubles and five singles, issued a walk, did have four strikeouts. He threw 94 pitches, 57 strikes versus 37 balls. Now, you can say that Fetty was the victim of some questionable defense In the Marlins, two-run first gave up a two-out, two-run single to J.J. Bladé on a ball that landed in the right center field gap between Victor Robles and Lane Thomas, and each guy seemed uh, rather uncertain about who was going after the ball, so that was not a good look. And then Fetty, in a Marlins one-run six, gave up a two-out infield single to Brian De La Cruz on a slow chopper to Ildemoro Vargas, who didn't really feel the ball in the best way, didn't charge the ball, then made a poor throw to first base. So you can note those things, but you know, at the end of the day, it's another rough outing for Fetty. It's another outing in which he puts on way too many guys on base, and it's another outing that increases his ERA. The Eric Fetty ERA now this season, over 25 starts, is at 534, and the whip is up to 157. Way too many guys on base in these Eric Fetty outings.
3: Yeah, look, I'm not going to try to say that this was a good start for him. It wasn't. I do think it looks a whole lot different if those two plays are made that were not made. That pop-up in the shallow right center field Really no excuse for that ball to get down. It's one thing if somebody's running after it and they just don't make the play. This was two outfielders giving up on it, either because they assumed the other was going to catch it or they were tentative, whatever the reason was, they both pulled up. And that can't happen in the big leagues. And that's with two outs and two on. You make that routine play. The inning is over, the pitch count's lower. Nobody scores. You're up one-nothing, going to the second inning, feeling a little bit good about yourself. Instead, it just felt like, oh, well, here we go. Now, Fetty then followed that up with a double. He was kind of lucky to get out of the inning without anything else scoring. Pitch count gets up to 24 after one inning. Pretty good after that, the home run to De La Cruz on the first pitch in the fourth, okay. And then the sixth, again, he's got the first two batters out and he's on the verge of getting through the sixth. Six innings, three runs, quality start, maybe even be able to come back for the seventh. Pitch count is down. And then that grounded third that just sort of caught Vargas in no man's land. Should he charge it? Should he back up on it? He chose to back up and it was too late to get him out. But then again, what happens after that? Single RBI double. so It is on Fetty when something like that happens to get through it, get the out himself, get out of the inning. and That's where he has struggled. It's a microcosm for Eric Fetty. He's good enough to put himself in position to be successful and he just can't finish the job for whatever reason. That's what has held him back from becoming a decent big league starting pitcher. We're now several years into this. It's the same story. What does that mean moving forward? I don't know. I mean, they're still not in a position where they have enough pitching depth that you can just say unequivocally they can move on from Fetty, but he is arbitration eligible. and Maybe one of these days they're going to decide, "Eh, we're not going to spend that money on a guy who's consistently proving to be a five ERA pitcher.
0: Yeah. I mean, we had this conversation around this time last year of might the Nats non-tender Fetty. You could argue, well, it's a good thing they did tender him because they needed him because they had so few starting pitching options again this year. And, you know, just looking ahead, barring the unforeseen, it's hard to see the Nats overflowing with starting pitching options for next year. So you would think that Fetty will be back, but you know, that will be one of the signs of things being better for the Nats when they can say bye-bye to the Eric Fettys of the world. And they stop bringing these guys back every year because, hey, we don't have anything better. You know, you hate that as a fan, right? When you have to say that, well, we don't have anything better. Like if not him, who, you know, and that's like that's such not the way for things to be. Like you always want, of course, competition and, you know, guys coming in who are better than guys who you already have. And you just have not had that with Fetty. So, you know, a lot of ways he's lucky to still be pitching for the Nats, but, you know, first round pick in 2014, I mean, next year will be the 2023 season. Like this is what he is at this point. You know, I think we're all willing to be patient, but at some point you say, Hey, this is probably just who a guy is. And, Yeah, it's just a shame. I mean, him and Josiah Gray seeing their seasons kind of come apart like this. I mean, we've referenced this with Fetty. His ERA this season through nine starts was well under four. I mean, he was having another nice season in terms of what he did last year, getting off to a good start, but things have just not gone well since then. This was his sixth start since coming off the 15-day injured list. Remember, he had that first start that went pretty well, that 4-2 loss at Seattle on August 23rd, two runs in five innings. But since then, his only other good start – Interestingly enough, was a start against the Mets. 7-1 win at the Mets on September 4th, one run, six innings. Every other start since coming off the I.L. has not been good. Like The sample size is large enough since coming off the I.L. to where he just has not been a very good pitcher.
3: Yeah, and I don't think there's any physical reason to look to any excuses to make here. This is just kind of who he is now. You're talking before, it reminded me a little bit, and, and this guy was a better pitcher than Fetty has been, but John Lannon was sort of the workhorse of the team during the really lean years. And deserved to keep getting chances to pitch for them. Maybe not as an opening day starter, but you thought, oh, he's at least a number four, number five starter. And they finally got to a point in 2012 where they were good enough, and they had a dominant rotation that he got squeezed out, and he spent basically a whole year at AAA as their fallback when they needed somebody late in the year when Strasburg was shut down, and that was essentially the end of his time here. Stuck around a couple more years, I think, with the Mets. Never made anything else out of it. And Fetty's situation a little bit similar there, where he's good enough to be on this team right now, but you feel like in another year or two, if things go the way that the Nationals want them to, um, they're going to have five better options. At the moment, they don't.
0: The only thing I would say is what we now can call the Austin Voth principle of, if Eric Fetty was on another team, if he was on, say, you know, uh, a more analytically inclined team, or just a team that has done a better job of developing pitchers, period, Would things look different? And I think, off what has happened with Austin Voth with the Orioles, that thought does have to cross your mind. And if you're the Nats, I wonder if that's in the back of your mind of like, is there some way to unlock Fetty the way that the O's have unlocked Voth? You know, like, I don't expect the Nats to apologize for Austin Voth, but to me, the Nats should be having like internal conversations of what happened with him? Why is he doing so well with them? What could we have done differently? You know it's not about blaming people, but it's about figuring out what went wrong so that that doesn't happen again. I wonder if those conversations have taken place. and I wonder if there's anything that you can apply to say someone like an Eric Fetty, who does have talent. Like it's not like the guy has no talent. It's not like the guy is incapable of pitching well. We have seen him pitch well, but obviously there is a consistency that just has not been there with him.
3: Yeah, I'm sure the conversations have been had with regard to both whether they have come to any conclusions or anything that they can actually do about it. I don't know the answer to that. I guess we'll find out in the long run. But yeah, it, there is always going to be a reluctance to part ways with somebody, especially a first round pick that you know there is talent there. You don't want to give up on him and have him develop into what you always thought it would be somewhere else. But you do have to see it eventually. You know, you can't just stick with it forever and just keep hoping or you need to try something different, try to get the most out of him whatever way you can. I do think he is a guy who benefits from better defense. I think both was the same way, but he just hasn't figured out how to put away hitters. Ahead in the count and so many foul balls he just doesn't get the swings and misses. That to me would be the missing link there and I don't know if they have figured out how it is that he gets to that or if somebody else would figure it out if he became their property at some point.
0: That's bullpen on Saturday evening was good. Jordan Weems and Steve Ciszek combined for two and a third scoreless innings with four strikeouts. So we got a Patrick Corbin update prior to the game. And uh, very interestingly, his next start will be skipped. So the threat of him finishing as a 20-game loser would seem to now be gone.
3: Yeah, so he is making progress in, in his back, but he's hasn't been able to throw off a mound yet. And and honestly, he would need to do that within the next day or two to throw a bullpen session to then allow him to make his next start. So they decided we don't need to force that issue. They can get through at least Monday and Tuesday against the Braves with Corey Abbott and Paolo Espino. And then they could come back with Josiah Gray on Wednesday if they wanted to. Although as we talked about the other night, There's still some question about what to do with Josiah. Are they ready to shut him down? Do they want to have him pitch again? So It's still up in the air whether Corbin would then make one final start. After that, we talked about that doubleheader against the Phillies. It does add a game. They need someone. Mackenzie Gore could probably start one of those games, but they may need Corbin before it's all said and done. But The timing of it says at best, he makes one more start which means sitting on 18 losses right now, he cannot get to 20. But for all the conspiracy theorists out there, this has nothing to do with that. This was not a way to prevent him from getting 20 losses. He said all along it didn't matter to him. You know, he started I think 3 games already sitting on 18 losses. So if they really cared about that, they would have shut him down earlier. So this is not that. This is just his back not being healthy enough at the moment to pitch off a mound and they don't really feel like that's worth pushing at this point.
0: And I don't think there are a ton of people caught up in the 20 loss thing. There probably are some, but I think most people are kind of like, whatever with that. Like, whether he gets to that or not, it doesn't change your outlook on him or on his season. We all know where he's at, and his number of losses doesn't, I don't think, factor into that. It's interesting with the Nats the rest of the way here. So you have game three at the Marlins Sunday, then you have the three game series against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park Monday through Wednesday. Off day on Thursday, and then the Nats end their season with seven games over six days, which just seems so fitting for the Nats this year with the way their schedule has been. Now, they have had more off days lately. That has been nice and that has been good, but they also have had some brutal stretches schedule wise this year. And it just seems like a fitting ending to their season that they have to go through a gauntlet of seven games in six days, seven games against two contending teams in Philadelphia and the Mets. And you have some starting pitching issues right now with Corbin in the back and Josiah Gray and some potential fatigue and what's going to happen with Mackenzie Gore. It feels like whenever the Nats have had a difficult stretch of the schedule, there have been starting pitching concerns in terms of pitcher availability. And it kind of feels like we're on the doorstep of another one of those situations right here.
3: Yeah. And against three playoff teams that need every win they can get down the stretch, it could actually get pretty ugly. Uh, They're at 99 losses now. So we're looking at 100 here soon. They would have to lose out to end up with 110. They're at 52 and 99 right now. You sure hope it doesn't come to that, but there may not be a lot of wins left on the board. But If anybody out there wants to complain about that schedule, the people to blame for this are the players union and the owners, because this is all a result of the lockout. The three games against the Mets is the extra series tacked onto the end that was supposed to be the opening series. The doubleheader against the Phillies is one of the other makeup games from their original home opening series against the Phillies in April. So you take the lockout of the equation. If the season starts on time, they're going to end the year with a six-game homestand with an off day in the middle of it. We wouldn't even be talking about this.
0: A lockout that solved basically nothing, a lockout that ended up being about things that really weren't that big of a deal. Look, The players and the owners wanted their money. Good for them. I don't begrudge anyone for wanting his or her money. But yeah, don't complain, okay? You put yourselves in this position. So ride it out, survive, and uh, count your checks at the end of the season. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter, at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast, at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, at NatsChatPodcast. You can get yourself or someone who you know a NatsChatPodcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.com dot square, dot site. Do not forget first ever Nats Chat podcast party Friday night, October 14th at seven o'clock at Walters, which is right across the street from Nationals Park. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please consider giving the podcast a five star rating if you haven't done that. And uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can write a review of the podcast. The review does not have to be long, it can be just a sentence or two saying that you like the podcast, but the ratings and the reviews do help us out, and we thank you very much for doing them. Natch Chat is on the radio on Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings at 9 on 1061 ESPN in Richmond. You can listen online at ESPNRichmond.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Natch Chat are courtesy of 1067 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Natch Chat Podcast.